0: I love to do. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to open your Bible this evening to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Pardon me, I was looking for something here. My wife and I, last weekend, actually it was uh, last Wednesday, we departed from Columbia uh, to make our voyage and our destiny to Suffolk, Virginia, where our oldest son lives, and his wife and, and uh, his two children, and then our youngest son, who lives in Springfield, Virginia, with his wife and their three children, and then our daughter with his Her husband and three children, or three boys, from the Outer Banks and Southern Shores, we all convened and went to uh, Suffolk, Virginia. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever been in one house with three adults and three spouses, a Papa D and a Mimi, and eight grandchildren ranging from age four To age 12, but as I look across this audience, you folks have children. I know that Pastor Mark, he and Allie have nine. I think the Nats has just had their eighth. So you certainly know what it is to be in a home with a lot of children. And when you're my age, in my wife's age, you realize that when you've got eight grandchildren, you will wear out before they do. But we love our grandchildren and so for me, my best time there was getting up around 4 o'clock every morning where I could gather my thoughts and spend time with God in the Word, in prayer, catching up on some reading, and just contemplating God. And as I was up early one morning at 4 o'clock, I began to realize that the older I get and the more I grow in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I realized that I contemplate God more. I'm more aware of the brevity of life. I realize I've got more rear view mirror mirror time than I have windshield time. And I know that I have been born with an expiration date. And I will not surpass those days that have been allotted to me. Like Job said of his life in Job 14. I realize that I've I've been born with an expiration date. We all have. It's important a man wants to die and then to judgment, Hebrews chapter 9. But all these thoughts were going through my mind. And I must admit that as I was sitting there early that morning in the sunroom, I began to become rather emotional. Tears began to flow down my face because I really was aware that God through His omnipresence was right there with me in that sunroom. Through the power... In the person of the Holy Spirit. And I began just to be in a place where I was so thankful and I was worshiping God. I was singing songs of worship to God. And I was so thankful to Him. And I caught myself as I was gathering my thoughts, asking God that if He would please give me a renewed sense of vision of the glorified Christ, of Himself. And when I thought that, I realized that that's something only the Lord can grace us to have. A renewed sense of vision of the majesty, the glory, and the awesomeness, and the wonder of God. I don't know if you've got a copy of the Valley of Vision. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you're not familiar with The Valley of Vision, it is a book with nothing but Puritan pastors and ministers' prayers that dates back to the 16th and the 17th century. My wife reads it in her time when she's with the Lord. I read it, of course, every day, and then she and I come together and we read it together. I must say that the Valley of Vision has been very, very beneficial to me because it's something that when I read it and I do read it, I begin to realize that these Puritan pastors and ministers going back to again the 16th and the 17th century, they most assuredly had a unique view And vision of the exalted Christ. Because you can't read their prayers without realizing that's what they had. And for me personally I catch myself. Almost allowing what they had to be something that I feel is contagious. I'm compelled to learn. Again to to be more in to a place of prayer. And fellowship and intimacy with God. More than I ever have in my Christian life, I am soon to be embarking on 49 years of being a Christian and soon 45 years of almost 50 years of being a minister of the gospel. But I can say with no hesitation, I love Christ today more than I ever have. I have a desire for Christ more today than I ever have. I want the word of God in my life today more than I ever have i never forget when I was first a minister, I was only 24 years old when I pastored my first church. And I remember I would meet together with some pastors every Tuesday morning just for a time of fellowship and prayer. And when I was called on to prayer, I mean, folks, I just poured my heart into it. And I would sometimes get emotional. And I would pray with a, what I would call a sincere, fervent heart. To know God, to know him more fully, to love him more passionately, and desire more to do what best brings him glory more earnestly. And I would pray that way. And I'll never forget, I'm 24 years old, and this gentleman comes up to me that's a pastor. I'm thinking back then, he could have been about 60 years old. And he patted me on my shoulder and says, you know, son, I had that kind of fire one day, but you hanging there it'll soon go out and you'll calm down and, and things will be okay. I must admit when I left that place, I was in tears because I'm hearing that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to get bored with this. I'm going to lose my love for Christ. I'm going to lose my zeal and my fervency to live for Christ and to share the gospel of Christ And to be in the Word of God and to enjoy fellowship with the saints and to be in the church. You know, in other words, this is going to become boring. This excitement, this thrill, this motivation, this godly enthusiasm I have inside. You mean to tell me one day it's going to stop? And all I could do when I left there that morning, driving in my car to go to my office said, God, please don't ever, please don't ever, let me lose this. And then that morning in Virginia, this past week, I guess out of all the prayers I prayed in the, prayed in the, uh, actually read in the Valley of Vision, the opening prayer. I made a copy of it. It's actually called the Valley of Vision. I want you to hear this prayer. It's powerful. It starts out by, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. This was the Puritan pastor's prayer. Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, the glory in my valley. I hope that's your heart this afternoon. As again, as I was thinking about that and I was again looking at that prayer, thinking about those thoughts, I began to say, God, please, may I come to a place of of actually craving to know you more fully, to love you more deeply. And to do what I do for your glory more earnestly. I pray this afternoon that that would be every one of our our hearts here before God. To know Him more fully. To love Him more passionately. And to do what we do for His glory more earnestly. Whatever most honors God is the path we must choose. That we may yearn to know God more fully, love Him more passionately, and live for His glory more earnestly. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. So that I may found favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people, Israel. Israel. Or the nation. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, this is Moses speaking to, again, God the Father. Again, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. I was thinking about that as I was reading this in Virginia. It really breaks my heart that many times you see little or no regard given to the third person of the Godhead called the Holy Spirit. As much as God is God, Jesus Christ is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus referred to Him as the Spirit of truth that guides you into all truth there is a life that is to be imbued by the Holy Spirit that you come under the control, be being kept controlled by the Holy Spirit, Paul said in Ephesians 5. A life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. But if I gather what Moses is really concerned here, he says, you know God, show me your ways that I may know you, but there's just no way I can make this pilgrimage Without your presence. Ladies and gentlemen, we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. This church needs the Holy Spirit in this church. I love the Holy Spirit. I love how the Holy Spirit takes the words from this book and makes it real in my heart. I never thought in my life I would ever welcome the dealings or the reproof of God, but I love the way the Holy Spirit takes the word that's inspired by Him in our hearts that reproves us, corrects us, and instructs us in the way of righteousness. I just love what the Holy Spirit does. I love the way the Holy Spirit uses you and how He encourages you and how you, in turn, encourage one another and you enjoy this relationship in this koinonia and fellowship in this church because of the holy spirit verse 16 for how then can it be known that i have found favor in your sight i and your people is it not by your going with us so that we i and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth There's something that needs to be distinguishable about the church. That is to say, that Moses was looking at him and God's people as saying that if these people belong to you, there should be something that's distinguishable, that's recognizable. And when you and I are out of the four walls of this building, and this is nothing more than a meeting house, this building is not the church. The Puritans called it the meeting house. This remains to be a building, but only becomes a church when you get here. Because you're the body of Christ. You're the church. You belong to Him. Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that He would build His church. The ecclesia, the called out ones, those that have been redeemed, those that He has purchased for His own by His blood. You're the church. You and I represent the King of Kings. He said, You're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. So when we're out beyond the four walls of this building, what is necessarily distinguishable about your life as far as belonging to Christ? Are we like the chameleon? We can change colors in any environment. To adapt. We don't wanna, we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And I was thinking about something recently, a couple of years ago, I was playing golf with some friends in a golf tournament, and I had not been officially introduced as a pastor to anybody, and there was a few guys that were just letting some very choice words fly. And finally, the guy that invited me began to apologize. I said, listen. Hey. He says, but I'm going to tell them that you are a preacher. I said, what would really be better if you just said, hey, Dave Spears is a Christian. He loves the Lord. There's something very distinguishable about his life. He loves the Lord. It was amazing that what was a letting every curse word seemingly fly out of their mouth. All of a sudden came a sense of sanctification in the group of guys that began to realize that there was something about somebody being there that represented God that caused like a sanctifying effect on their lives. not because dave spears is important mind you or i'm something special mind you but we are light and we all are salt and we should be distinguishable and people should really see that when they see you what they see do they see christ do they see a life that is imbued with the holy spirit and a life that displays the glory and the honor <coughs> excuse me and the person of Christ. Then verse 17 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And then he said in verse 19, he he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, and no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while by glorious passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. R.C. Sproul once was asked, what is the greatest need in the world today. And without hesitation he said. People in the world need to know who God is. Then there was a follow up question to that question. And he was asked what is the greatest need in the church today? And without hesitation again he said people in the church need to know who God is. And that's what Moses Was saying. God I want to know your ways. So that I may know you. In ways there is not necessarily something he just does. As much as when he said I want to know your ways. I really want to know you. Your nature. Your attributes. Your character. So that I may know you. And so in essence when Moses is asking The Lord to show him his glory. That's what he's doing. Show me who you are. Your nature, your character, and your attributes. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, I think the greatest weakness in our day is the eternal eclipse of the character of God even within our churches. Again, Moses said in verse 13 here, let me know your ways that I may know you. The psalmist said in Psalm 103 verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. The psalmist said in Psalm 24, 4, 25, 4, make me know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Psalm 27, 11 again says, teach me your way, O Lord, Psalm 87 11, the psalmist says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Then in Jeremiah 23 and 24, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, saith the Lord, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I, the Lord, delight in these things. So even Jeremiah says, if you think you know a lot, don't brag about it. If you think you've got a lot of wisdom, don't get all excited about it. And if you've got a lot of money, excuse me, and a lot of gold, and a lot of possessions, don't brag about it. Don't boast about it. But if you're going to boast about anything, you need to boast about this, that you know and understand the Lord. That he exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Right there in that verse 24 of Jeremiah 9. You see clearly three very significant attributes of God that you can know. One is loving kindness. The other one is justice. And the other one is righteousness. And the Bible says that God delights in the fact that you know that, even the apostle Paul yearned to know Him. He said in Philippians three ten that I may know Him, know Him. When it comes to again Moses saying, "God, I pray Thee, show me Your glory." It's interesting when I had that experience myself this past week in Virginia. And I began to pray to God for a, a renewed sense of vision of His glory and His majesty and His wonder. And all of His glory. And then He says, again God, show me your ways that I may know you. It was after that I experienced that I began to read this and I began to really see something that was very significant for every one of our lives that happened here for Moses. He truly had a passion for God's glory. And we should too. And then I was thinking how that there is a Latin term that is used and is pronounced corum deo. I'm sure you've heard it. It is a Latin term But it literally means before the face of God or in the presence of God. To be more exact about what it really means or refers to is that Coram Deo in Latin is before the face of God or in the presence of God means that we live in His presence, under His authority, and for His glory. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the scrutiny of God. Do you realize what that implies? There's nothing you do that others see or nothing you do that nobody sees, but yet God sees and God knows about you and me. To say that we live in the presence of God and understanding that it means we live under his divine gaze and his scrutiny is to realize that God knows everything there is to be known about you. He knows what you're thinking at this very moment. Whether you're thinking about something that happened yesterday or something that's going to, take, uh, to happen tomorrow or something that you're thinking about now concerning this message. Whatever the case may be, nothing is hid from God. God knows everything about you down to the very most integral, the most minute, small, tiny thing about your life, period. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking that if God sees everything about you and everything about me, and if we understand that again Moses is wanting to know God's way so that he can know Him, and he wants to know what it is that he can do, or, God, I pray you, show me your glory. It's really this thing of quorum Deo before the face of God, or in the presence of God. And here's what I thought: If you really believe this, and if I really believe this, should this have a tremendous bearing on the way you live? Should this have a tremendous bearing on how you act? That you know that God, through His gaze, divine gaze and scrutiny, knows everything about your life. In fact, the last letter that Paul would ever pen before he would die, and have his head chopped off at a chopping block, was the last letter he penned to Timothy, in Second Timothy chapter four, verse one. Where he tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then begins to tell him, preach the word in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, do the work of an evangelist. It It was Paul's last words given to him before again Paul would die for the sake of the gospel. But he wanted Paul, or excuse me, Paul wanted Timothy to know... That everything you do as a minister of the gospel, it is to say that God is looking over your shoulder. Everything you do, everything I do, no matter what it is, as I said, in secret, out of secret, something you don't want somebody to know, or something you might want somebody to know, whatever the case, God's looking over your shoulder. Coram Deo means we're we're in the face of God. We're in the presence of God. He knows everything about your life. He's gazing, He's looking, it's His divine scrutiny that He is using to look at your life and my life. And again, shouldn't that have a tremendous bearing on how we live and how we behave when it comes to, again, saying, you know God, I want to know You more fully, I want to love You more passionately, and I want to live for Your glory more earnestly. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape His penetrating gaze. But what about the authority? What about the authority? Lord here, all caps, is translated Yahweh. So we come under Yahweh. He is Lord. We submit. We obey. And then for His glory... The truth of the matter is there's nothing more important than this. I love what 1 Corinthians ten thirty one says. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much is all? You can't get any more than all. I'm one that loves to look at the meaning of words. I looked at the word all in the dictionary and it means all. You can't get any more than all. So this right here essentially captures the essence of the Christian life. To know His way so that we can know Him. For God to show us His glory. To know His nature, His character, His attributes. If you want to know what God thinks about your marriage, go to the book. If you want to know what God thinks about the church you attend, whether they're preaching truth or not preaching truth, go to the book whether it comes to whatever you do as far as a living and career, if there's questions you need, if there's something that needs to be answered, go to the book. There we find the truth of God. There we find all that God has to say about what it is to live a life in godliness to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this literally actually means what Moses was asking and what he was pleading and pleading with from God to show him, his, show him his glory refers to something that takes place in the presence of God or before the face of God. It is to say to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the absolute glory of God. That's our existence. And here's a PowerPoint. If we fail to live for the glory of God we miss the most important point of the most important thing that we exist to do if we do not live for the glory of God. There's another important point here and it is this there is truly no life worth living where there's little or no regard given for the glory of God. There's no life worth living where there's no glory not given to God. And that also knowing God and seeing His glory is imperative. It is foremost in the life of the child of God. Coram Deo. In His presence. Under His authority. For His glory. When you go back to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus God saves and delivers His people. And He also gives them His ten commandments. We know that. The word Exodus actually means a going out, a going out, or a coming out to enter in. We know that that Exodus was written by Moses. In fact, Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. And of course, Moses carefully and obeyed God and followed the Lord's command when he, according to chapter 24, verse 4 in Exodus, it says... Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he did. Some key thoughts in Exodus are his covenant promises, the nature, or the nature of his attributes, his character, the Ten Commandments. In fact, some of the things you'll see in Exodus that are important, that Moses was desiring and Moses wanted, is that God is accessible. God is glorious, He's good, He's gracious, He's holy, He's long suffering, He's merciful, He's all powerful, He's provident, He's true, He's unequaled, He's wise, and He's wrathful. But again, we look at verse 18. Moses says, Show me your glory. Moses certainly had experienced a number of occasions where he had witnessed the glory of God. Exodus 3, the burning bush. It burned, but it was not consumed. The Lord spoke to him and says, take your shoes off your unholy ground. Exodus 13, 21, when the tabernacle was built or when they were getting ready to and and, uh, when they were leaving, God was leading them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a display of the glory of God. Exodus 14, the hand of God parted the Red Sea. It was the glory of God put on display. Exodus 17, water came gushing out of the rock. Exodus 19, the fire fell on Mount Sinai, consuming the mountainside. Moses actually witnessed God's glory. In these actual manifestations, these occurrences that he actually witnessed himself. But when again you look at verse 18, where he says, show me your glory. He was yearning for a deeper knowledge of God. He was yearning for a deeper knowledge of God. He wanted to know more of God. What is interesting here is that what Moses begins to hear is that God begins to preach to him. I like to call it the day that God preached to Moses. Again, when you look at verse 19 all the way through 23, we're not going to read it again, but if you look back up in verse 19... I will read this. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim. That word there actually means to actually one who is raising one's voice by declaring. It's a word that's carried over into the the New Testament as one who would proclaim or preach the good news that would herald and preach the gospel. But in this context, it's God proclaiming to Moses. Is God preaching to Moses about himself? Is God actually answering his request and his plea about God showing him his glory? And the way that God discloses himself and reveals himself is by preaching the truth about himself. It's interesting that the Bible is God's own self disclosure of himself that we are to learn we are to read we are to behave we are to embrace for his glory what is descriptive and what is disclosed about God is found in the word of God and God is about to preach that to Moses This message from God to Moses was God's own, again, self-disclosure of himself. What the Lord proclaims in this message is that he revealed his name and his nature and his character and his attributes. When you look here, I've got to abbreviate some of this. My time's going quickly here. But when you come back and look at, again, verse 19. He says, I'm going to proclaim to you the name of the Lord, and I'm going to do that before you. God actually proclaims His name, the Lord. He actually used it twice. The Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh. It's a word that means to be, meaning God is the self-existing one. Moses wants to know who He is. He wants to know His ways, so he can know Him. And God begins by telling him what His name is. He's Yahweh. That's His eternal, His covenant name that He actually gave to Moses back in Exodus 3 but reminding Him again of the same thing about Yahweh, His name. This name Yahweh makes known so much about Himself and it is to say that He is self-sufficient, He is eternal, He is unchanging, He is depending on no one, He is the living, life-giving, and all-sustaining One. And then the second name God used to reveal himself to, to Himself to Moses is God. El or Elohim, God. Which translates the strong one, the almighty, the infinitely powerful one. The same one we see in Genesis 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning was God. El, El Shaddai. Not El Shaddai, but Elohim, pardon me. The strong one, the almighty one, the infinitely powerful one. And so the Lord preaches his divine nature to Moses. More to be seen of God than what He had mentioned in His name. God preaches His sovereign choice, His redeeming power, His securing power, His sustaining power, His upholding power, and His saving, delivering grace. All to be His nature, His character, and His attributes. When you look at verse 6, pardon me, not verse 6, but jumping down to chapter 34, I've got to move on here. Looking at verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. This is on the mountain and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's where you shall wait twice. God, Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression of sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty Unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And then verse 8 says, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth in worship. So we see Lord, we see God, but also what he's preaching here is that the Lord preaches his own compassion, compassionate and gracious. This is God's affection towards those who desperately needs His salvation, His deliverance. That's a powerful attribute of God. He's compassionate. By His very nature, He's a saving God. And then it uses the word gracious. It's a word that means to bend down or to stoop. He came to us. That essentially is what the incarnation is. When we couldn't come to God, He came to us. He became something... He had never been without seeking to be what he'd always been. So he reveals himself as Lord, as God to Moses. He's compassionate, he's gracious, but also the Lord preaches to Moses his patient mercy. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. What does this mean? What does this attribute, this nature of God mean? This delay in exercising divine van wrath is meant to give time for sinners to repent. The Lord is slow to lose His anger towards those under His wrath. And then He preaches on about the Lord's loving kindness and abounding in loving kindness. Abounding in loving kindness. This speaks of God's loving kindness, His loyal, faithful love for His own, His people, His elect, those that He has compassion on. His unwavering devotion and faithfulness to His people. Abounding. Abounding. And then He preaches His faithfulness. Notice He uses the word truth, which could be better translated faithfulness. That is to say that one of the most unique attributes and characteristics of God is that He's reliable. He's faithful. I love Lamentations 3. Every morning that God allows you to wake up, me to wake up, to greet another day, to greet another morning, the first thing that you're greeted with is He makes His mercies new to you every day. Because His compassions never fail. And great is His faithfulness. Do you get that? I mean, if God wills, if you and I wake up in the morning, the first thing that will greet you and me is mercy, compassion, and God's faithfulness. His reliability. Then God preaches to Moses about His limitless mercy in verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands of generations to come. It is to say that His mercy is limitless. It's never exhausted. It's one of the most unique, one of the most powerful attributes of God. His mercy. Then also Moses hears God preaching to him about forgiveness. It says here, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The Lord is a pardoning God. He forgives. And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that when He compels you and you come to Him, Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I lose none. He said in John 10, that no one will be able to pluck you out of my hand. those that God gives me will come to me. There's that efficacious call. There is that... There is that unresistible call. When God calls you to salvation through the work of His sovereignty and the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, which is a love gift from the Father to the Son, a redeemed people, He pardons us what we're guilty of. There's therefore now no condemnation. He pardons us. You've been acquitted, there's nothing held against you, you've been justified. In a court of law, that's a judicial term. Your pardon. Although you're guilty, He never was. But He became your sin on the cross so that you could become and receive His perfect righteousness and forgiveness and be pardoned of your sin. As though you never sinned. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin. Who knew no sin? That we might become righteous with His righteousness. The Lord is a pardoning God. He forgives. And then he preaches that the guilty will not go unpunished. He says yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord will not have Moses believing that he views sin lightly. The only thing that can provide acquittal and pardoned and nullify what we're guilty of Is what Christ did for you and me. Otherwise, the wrath of God remains on you. And if you die in your sin unbelieving, you will go into eternity lost forever with Christ to face the full wrath of God's judgment in hell. That's an attribute. And then God preaches His protecting mercy to Moses when He said, Hear, In the latter part of verse 7 of chapter 34. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children. And on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Listen folks this does not mean the future generations are declared guilty because of the sin of their fathers. It's not what that means. But it does mean that there are consequences to sin. That are passed down from one generation to the next generation. And the real point here is to say that sin does affect others for a long period of time. Then our closing thought is verse 8. When Moses prayed in 33 of chapter 33, show me your ways that I may know you, your nature, your attributes, your characteristics, or your character. I pray, show me your glory. God did it by preaching this to Moses, what we just saw. That's how he revealed his glory, his nature his character, and his attributes. And the only proper response is what is seen in verse 8. When God revealed what Moses pleaded for, it says, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Isn't that the only way to respond to when God reveals his glory? In the face of God, in the presence of God? living in His presence under His authority for His glory. Remember to know God more fully, love Him more passionately, live His glory more fully That it is to say that the ultimate priority for the Christian is Coram Deo in His presence, under His authority for His glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, thank You so much, God, for Your tender love and Your mercy. Your forgiveness. Your faithfulness. Your truth. Oh, God. Forgive us, Lord, when we again take these things for granted. Or maybe sometimes we come to a place in life where we seemingly have hardly any regard for it. And many times that shows up in the way we live and the way we behave. But if we are indeed living under your penetrating gaze. In your divine scrutiny. In your omnipresence. In your presence Your face, your glory, oh God. It should have a tremendous bearing on the way we live and the way we behave to the honor and glory of you. For that, God, we give you praise and we give you glory. Your intrinsic glory is who you are. Your manifest glory is who you are in our lives as we live in obedience to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. A closing hymn is hymn number 353. Quite appropriate.